0: In the prime of life, says me. Far as I be known, haven't time to slack around in comfort all the year. So when we get online and check it out for one Most enjoy the library, I think, for many
1: years. Yes, most enjoy the library. As long as tide is flowing. So head on down to the library, and this is what you'll hear. Come on, on in, and look all around. There's plenty for to see. Make your own self, right at home. I love the library. Come, Come on and in, and look all around. There's Welcome to Homegrown Conversations, a collaboration between KFSK and the Petersburg Public Library. Today is Rainforest Writers Read 2021 Part 2, and we have local writers Mike Schwartz, Sonny Rice, Lizzie Thompson, Chris Weiss, and Oren Pearson. This was part of the Rainforest Festival that happened in September.
0: Hello, everybody. It is so great to have everyone here. Uh, I am Oren Pearson, your facilitator of the Rainforest Writers Creative Writing Workshop. And I'm honored to be here with you for another year hosting this event of local literature to close out the Rainforest Festival. What a joyful last few days it's been celebrating this place we're all so lucky to share and be a part of. And I'd like to take a second to thank all the volunteers who put in effort practically all year long to bring these four days of festive inspiration together. And a big thank you goes out to our visiting artists and teachers, Kim McNett and Naomi Mickelson. It's been great to meet these visiting uh, inspiring people. Big ganol sheesh goes out to them. Also, it's important to acknowledge that the Rainforest Festival takes place on Klinkit On E. And I'd like to honor and respect the traditional landowners, Kik Kwan and uh, Shtakin Kwan elders, past, present, and future generations, Ganal Shish. And I want to thank all of you for being here. Those of you who are reading tonight, those of you who are listening, it's so nice to be here together. And we've got a wonderful lineup of local writers reading their work. So for from the comfort of your own home on this beautiful Sunday evening, Please offer a warm welcome to tonight's first reader
2: is Mike Schwartz. Not all of us survived the storm. I had quit my job teaching and it was my first year fishing chums in Lynn Canal. We began in early September and planned to fish well into October. I was fishing alone on a 30-foot Roberts that I'd had built in 1971. The fall chum run was strong and the fleet of 300-plus had done quite well. The weather had been unusually rough with the strong Southeast blowing up the canal incessantly. By the end of September, we'd lost four boats to the weather, usually caused by too many fish on board and a large swell engulfing the stern. The old wooden double enders, not able to slough the water fast enough. They've sunk and they were lost. The end of the second week of October, I picked the net at 1 a.m. The seas were quiet at the time with a light southeast, just enough to keep the boat hanging off the end of the net. I had a bite to eat and I laid down to, to take a short nap. It was the end of the week. The fleet had worked hard under turbulent conditions. We were tired. I awoke at 2.45 a.m. aware that the wind had changed. It had changed to a northerly. I got up to check the net and was surprised to see fresh snow covering the deck. As I picked a hundred fish out of the net, the wind progressively got worse. I ducked in behind Sullivan Island and unloaded the BFI tender. I'd had to wait in line, so by the time I'd finished, it was after 8 a.m. The wind was getting worse by the minute, snow falling hard. I ran down to the south end of Sullivan Island and anchored in the lee in the shallow water as I dared. There were already a dozen or so boats hunkered down. I didn't have an anchor winch. The northerly gusts were so strong. Even in the lee of the island, the anchor drugged. It drug me into deep water and I had to haul it by hand. The radio was humming constantly. Several boats had already gone down. Boats were trying to buck the northerly that was now blowing in excess of 50 miles per hour. They were desperately trying to get to the protection of the cannery in the Chil- Chilcat Inlet or fight their way up to Haynes. One of the largest gill netters fishing the inlet had had fish on deck and had rolled over outside Sullivan Island. The captain and the crew had been picked up by a nearby boat. I drug anchor four times. Without an anchor, once I had to haul anchor, chain and rope by hand, pulling the boat against the wind, I was exhausted. The wind had increased. I couldn't buck my way north. So I decided to put my stabilizers down and head south to Juneau with the swells. Paul Garceau saw me heading out and he called on the radio telling me not to leave as the prediction was for ever increasing winds. Two boats had gone down south and east of us at Point Sherman. I told Paul I had no choice but to run for it. He said I was out of my mind but wished me the best. I, I had to somehow make my way across Lynn Canal from the west side to the east side attempting to get to Bridget Cove. I idled my way across, increasing and decreasing my speed as the giant swells pushed me along. My biggest fear was broaching as a huge swell would hit me from behind and I'd have to ride to the crest into the trough ahead of me. I had my radar on. So in spite of the intense snowfall and lack of visibility, I could run a relatively straight course across Lynn Canal. The battle to keep the stubby fiberglass boat from rolling over or broaching was constant. I tried to get into my survival suit but because of the extreme seas, snow and wind, I was unable to do so. I looked at my tide book earlier on and knew the tide would begin to flood against the wind and swells about halfway between Point Sherman and Point St. Mary. All this time my radio was on and I listened as a total of nine boats had gone down in the severe weather. It was reported that the winds were out of the north in excess of 90 miles per hour at Eldred Rock. I was about halfway across the canal when I heard a mayday from the 10th boat that was sinking just north of Point Sherman. Another boat was close by to pick up the survivors. I was in an impossible situation to turn into the wind to go to them. The tide turned and the swells grew ever steeper and more violent as I approached Point St. Mary. At that time, the weather cleared and I could see Jay Schultz ahead of me. The huge mountain along the mainland would go completely out of sight as the boat was swept into the trough. At one point, Jay's Stern was so far out of the water that I could see the rudder, propeller, and most of the bottom of his boat as the swells lifted him and hurled him into another trough. I was amazed that he was still afloat as the violence of the following sea threatened to flip the vessel on his back as he slid down the front side of a 16-foot wave. He had no stabilizers. We traveled side by side for over an hour doing everything in our power to keep the boats upright. At about 4.30 p.m., we found ourselves in dead snow once again. The radar showed us passing Berners Bay and heading into Bridget Cove. The seas began to subside as we approached a partial lee of the storm. Upon reaching Benjamin Island, things finally began to settle down. I called Jay on the radio. He was shaken up. The inside of the boat was in total disarray, but we were both breathing easier. At 7 p.m., we went through the back channel of Douglas Island and tied the boats up to to the dock in Juneau. The entire trip down, we had listened to the constant battle of boats, dragging anchor or trying to battle their way against the storm to fight their way north. Several inches of snow had fallen in Juneau. We walked uptown for a warm, comfortable dinner, feeling ever so fortunate to have the boats tied to a dock. And to be on solid ground. It was reported the next morning that a total of 11 boats had gone down on that terrible day. It was also confirmed that the fall storm that had roared in from the north had reported wind gusts in excess of 100 miles per hour in Lynn Canal. We were lucky to be alive. Thank you. Gomes wow. Chish.
0: Thank you, Mike. What a, what a slice of life that was.
2: Yeah, that was a rough time. Oof. Okay.
0: Well, next on the stage, we're going to welcome Sunny Rice. Sunny, welcome.
3: Thanks. I have three short poems. Um, the first is called... Uh, All of them, I believe crafted with the help of Warren Pearson in writing workshops. The first is called Bird Omens. There's Raven, of course, quoting darkly outside the door and the murder of crows. We all know what they mean, but what about the doves mourning in pairs on the power lines? Or the brown thrasher, sowing chaos as he rummages our garden? Does a chickadee hopping in for a seed portend a day of action? Or a song sparrow whistling us awake promise our sweetie will call? I am certain the hawk high overhead is showing me the way home, though I'm not yet ready to follow. But this quiet morning, the lilt of the thrush and the timpani of the hooter, these mean nothing. So the first poet that got me into poetry was Langston Hughes. And I read him recently trying to see what it is that he has among so many other things is rhythm. So I've been trying to force myself to work a little bit with rhythm and I wrote a sonnet for Petersburg, which also has a a proscribed rhyme and a proscribed rhythm. So it's a fun little exercise. Sonnet for Petersburg. My home is where the mountains meet the sea and eddies through the wooded islands flow, through tangled manes of seaweed streaming green and feed the clinging mussels down below. My home is where the water stands in bogs with so much moisture dripping from the sky, you'd think we'd all be cousins to the frogs with gills and windshield wipers on our eyes. But fen and forest bloom beneath the rain With boletes, berries, old man's beard and then, as if repeating nature's songs refrain, send the water oceanward again. Yes, despite the pounding rain and wind and sea, this life aquatic surely is for me. And one more, this is, After a poem by Jim Morrison called, I Believe, written in one of Orin's workshops, and this one is called, I Believe. Oh. I believe in raven prints in snow, cracking mud, dancing to the radio, and overgrown hedges with curled brown leaves harboring drab sparrows with sparkling songs. I believe in the snapping shut of wooden boxes and the whoosh of an opening umbrella. I believe in two lane highways curving around cliffs and emergency escape ramps for trucks. I believe in candles that drip, splashing gutters and the ripples behind the salmon's back. I believe in flossing, but maybe not every day, and the patched holes in hand knit mittens. Also the magic of sun on water dirt on denim and blueberries on pancakes. I believe in flannel and waiting and love. Thanks.
0: Thank you for that, Sunny. Wow. The three
1: If you are just joining us, this is Homegrown Conversations, a collaboration between KFSK and the Petersburg Public Library. I'm Kari Peterson, and on today's show, we are have Rainforest Writers Read 2021 from the Rainforest Festival in September. This is put together by Oren Pearson, and the upcoming writers are Lizzie Thompson Chris Weiss, and Oren Pearson.
0: Okay, next up we've got Lizzie Thompson.
1: I have to
4: read after that beautiful poetry that made me a little misty. (laughs) Okay, Jungle Love. She was seven when the realtor showed her parents the house while the grown-ups talked, she and her brother explored the acre it sat on, a jungle so thick their eyes had to adjust to its greenish light. The paths were narrow and lined with colored glass bottles, seashells, bright bits of broken pottery. Hidden under an enormous hairy fern was a little cement troll with a leering smile that made her reach for her brother's arm. There were greenhouses, three, small and adorned with a thin coat of bright green moss that looked and felt like the velvet dress Alison Silover wore to midnight mass. Some of their glass panes were cracked, some shattered on the dirt floor, creating blinding squares of blue sky in their murky roofs and shafts of light that cut through the crazy tangle of long neglected plants. They discovered a pomegranate tree, a Venus fly trap, and kumquats that made their jaws cramp from the sweet, sour juice. They walked into spider webs, but kept going. When they got all the way to the back of the property, her brother made a stirrup of his hands and gave her a boost. On the other side of the fence was a perfect lawn surrounded by pale gravel. An old man sat in a bright blue lawn chair glaring at her while jabbing his pointer finger towards the ground she dropped back into the cover of the eucalyptus trees that lined the fence and canopied over the wild yard. They heard their mother calling and wound their way back along different paths, past a shrub hung with colorful flags, several bird baths, and riots of exotic flowers they'd never met. They ducked under a vine and found a rabbit hutch, empty, pale, dusty pellets below. Their mother yelled again, they found their way to the driveway and climbed into the car, sorry to leave, as surely that garden held many more wonders. They talked of little else but the garden, the magic, beautiful, crazy garden. They would build a tree house. They would fix up the greenhouses and fill the rabbit hutch. When it was time for their father to sign some paperwork and get the keys that would make the garden theirs, they begged to go along. As they turned into the driveway, they passed a tall tree veiled in a shimmering orange. Their father parked and went into the house as they ran back to the street to investigate. Thrilled with a mix of fear and wonder, they forced themselves to hold still as the monarch butterflies dripped off the tree, landed in their hair, and crawled up their naked arms on prickly, shiny black feet. Their father signed the papers and called them to the car. He said the movers would have them in by next week. When the day finally came, they could barely sit still on the drive to the new house. As their father swung the car into the driveway around the butterfly tree, they saw the house now sat in a dirt field with a yellow tape boundary around it and signs that said, stay off the grass. The eucalyptus trees along the pointing man's fence looked much closer than they had seemed when walking through the ferns, the orchids, the bamboo that waved far over their heads. It was all gone and she would never love her father the way she had before he tore down that glorious garden because it was too much to deal with. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much for that, Lizzie. Wow. Okay, and our next reader is Chris Weiss.
5: Well, if you don't mind, I've got two very short ones, so I'll do try and do both of them. Um, the first one is the, the talk. Sounds of rocks moving on my garden path, not human, not dear, pause, look up, bare head in view. If she sees my still form, she does not admit it. Curiosity moves her form into the smaller greenhouse where tomatillos are struggling to grow. Then safely past the composter huffing that it had been righted when she had taken such care tipping it over to explore. As I stood on the porch watching, the raven started to speak. Chatter, squawk, to whom? I joined the conversation with my own badly mimicked voice. Raven responded with my sounds. Each variation spoke to where he had been and what he had heard. The view from the treetops and feel of wings slicing through air, language, music, laughter. We met again to talk, same time, the following day. And this one is ephemeral. Bird and net disappeared shortly after staging on the large driftwood stump near the whale observatory. Bird was a rock the shape of a raven's head, clothed in corn husk crest with feathers, bound with corn husk cordage. Nett's stone body had a collar of old man's beard, lower half basketed with braided canary reed grass. Friends texted the following morning, wondering where to look. In a moment of hubris, I envisioned they were so loved, someone chose to protect and extend their ephemeral life. Cordage, found in the rocks below their perch, revealed a different end. Moved. Undone. There would be no natural process. No returning back to basic elements. One friend imagined a curious bird or otter picking at the human-crafted bits I understood no creature of the wild would carry rocks back to their native shore. In a moment of hubris, I write. My words weave containers round rocks, weighted with meeting. Forbidden to decompose with grace and dignity, they fall, dismantled to the foot of the page.
0: Thank you so much, Chris. Gosh. Okay, and I'll close us out tonight. You know, the the festival always gets me thinking this time of year. And uh, this year, it had me thinking about what it means to be a naturalist. And for me, that means paying close attention to nature and to the nature of things. And for me, it's through listening to nature that I pay my best attention. But I want to listen even better and pay even closer attention. When I listen to the sandhill cranes play their bugles in the clouds, I want to feel the whole sky vibrate from it and feel the leaves rattle on the poplar tree. I wanna think about where the cranes have been and where they're going. And I wanna be less worried about the way things change because the cranes sing a song of the season's change and the sound is beautiful. When I listen to my dog dreaming in front of the heater, flexing the muscles in her legs and murmuring, I wanna recognize how that reveals her mind and her possession of imagination In her dream, she plays back favorite memories. She dreams herself running down the beach with the people and the dogs she cares most about. When I listen to a loon's call echoing across the water, making the hair stand up on the back of my neck, I want to notice that the call is beautifully tuned to a B flat, like a clarinet, like a trumpet, like a sax. When I listen to the glacier groan and thunder, I want to remember the ice flowing across time like a river, grinding the peaks of Petersburg mountain, smoothing all its cousins, melting ancient ice, revealing these islands, raising the ocean, driving the people from Beringia to Tlingit-Ani 10,000 plus years ago, before I staggered in two minutes before midnight, when I hear the humpback wail, sigh a deep breath, I want to remember my melancholy grandmother and her eyes as gray as the ocean on a rainy day, driving me in her cigarette smoke to the post office in a red car, raising four sons, each one harder to love than the last, but her loving them anyway and loving me as a fifth one when my young mother passed. I want to sit and listen to Frederick's sound, and notice how every living wave is whispering the history of how every drop of water in every body was formed beyond the frost line before Earth had cooled enough for water to condense and form here. The world used to be so young, hot-tempered with few prospects until icy asteroid bombardment for a billion years matured us enough that we might start to get more complicated. I want to learn to listen more to nature and to people who I don't already like and learn about the things we have in common. I wanna ask my dad about his life when he was young and making his mistakes. I wanna listen close enough to understand his motivations and see the ways he was so sure that what he was doing was right. I wanna grow my empathy so the empathy might grow into compassion. I wanna learn how to write and listen closely to stories from inside my memory and imagination. And I want to listen closely to you here in this room and everyone who puts words on the page to make the art that conveys each writer's unprecedented experience of human nature. And I wanna thank you again and again for sharing your stories, your creativity, and your experiences. Thank you for being here and thank you for listening.
1: Thank you to Oren Pearson and all the writers who took the time to put this together. Um, Today's writers were Mike Swartz, Sonny Rice, Lizzie Thompson, Chris Weiss, and Oren Pearson. This has been Homegrown Conversations, a collaboration between KFSK and the Petersburg Public Library. And thank you to the friends of Petersburg Libraries for making today's show possible.